Hey y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson, and from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. Welcome to our final episode of the year, Southbound's Best of 2023. I feel lucky and blessed that so many people open their minds and hearts to us on the podcast this year. In this episode, we're running excerpts from our shows with home renovation stars Ben and Aaron Napier, Texas troubadour Robert Earl Keane, sports commentator Bamani Jones, and many more. The South is home to many voices, and we hope this episode serves as a sampler of sorts. If you hear something you like, all 150-plus episodes of Southbound are archived at wfae.org southbound. We hope you enjoyed this one. Here are some of this year's best conversations. Let's start off with Aaron and Ben Napier, who have turned the small town of Laurel, Mississippi, into a most unlikely tourist destination. Their show, Hometown, on HGTV, follows the Napiers as they renovate houses in Laurel for both longtime residents and newcomers. It's become so popular that people flock to Laurel from all over the country to see the town the Napiers have remade. In this clip, they talk about how their fame still doesn't feel quite real. Was there a point when it started to feel like real? Like when did it, because you know, you've got this show and you can tell people we're doing a show on HGTV, but nobody's seen it yet. And you haven't seen it yet. Mm-hmm. So at what point did that feel like Wow, this is actually happening. It still does. Nope. Because it was such a, like, think about, Once you you're are... from a small town in Georgia, okay? Think about, like, hey, your town, and you are going to host an HGTV show about you and your town. Like, it's such a far-fetched Dream, you're a small town in South Mississippi that you can't get to, and it still feel like we 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 talk about it all the time. Like it just doesn't, it does not feel. When you're making a TV, we show, got interviewed by Reba McIntyre this morning. But because we were a part of it, it made Reba seem like a normal person. It didn't make me feel like a famous person. Does that make sense? Not for me. It made me feel like Reba's messed. Some somebody has messed up somewhere. Reba's still we're not a big, supposed to be. Here. We're not supposed to be That's here. That's how it right is for now. you. That's how it is for me. Like Reba, uh-huh. Reba is still Reba Fancy McIntyre. Mm-hmm. Okay. By the way, my farm truck is named Reba because of Reba McIntyre. Reba and Jenna Bush still feel like Hager. She's married now. Sorry, Hager. Um, still feels like. Like it still feels like they are a big deal, and that someone has messed up and uh, you imp- have imposter, imposter syndrome. syndrome. That's it. I don't have imposter syndrome. I feel like you pull everybody down to your level. Yeah, I guess. Ann Hull wrote one of my favorite memoirs of the year, a book called Through the Groves, about her childhood in Florida's Orange Country before Disney World changed everything. She had to navigate not just a changing landscape, but family issues and her own evolving sense of who she was. Here, she talks about how it slowly dawned on her that she was gay. So you grew up 
clearly is sort of a tomboy, you know. You ran around with no shirt on until you were old enough where you had to go to school. You didn't want to play with dolls when you were a kid. You wanted to play with the toys that the boys were playing with. But then later on, there are also these moments like when you first go to college and you are trying to do the sorority rush and you're devastated because you can't get in. It feels like there was kind of a push and pull within you trying to figure out that's that's very true. I mean, I resisted the dolls being forced on me as a kid, and I resented it that these people, these relatives, clearly knew I did not want to play with dolls, and yet they kept foisting them on me. So it was a little bit of a rebellion, and I, you know, grew to not like dolls even more. I'd rather be in a tree. I'd rather be with the boys, building forts, that kind of thing. As I get older, you just become more a girl does, I think, more aware of expectations. And the expectation was to sort of, yeah, wear dresses to church, don't cuss, don't hang out with the boys, at least at that age. And that didn't feel normal to me. And so the older I got, the more it became clear, those expectations needed to be met. And I am the last person who should ever join a sorority. (laughs) Why I went out for sorority rush at Florida state is a mystery. It is some form of acceptance. I was looking for something and thank the Lord I did not get into one. There are a couple of moments that I thought along these lines that are pretty funny to me, at least in the telling now. One is after having, you know, one or two of your first experiences, you're leaving the house one day and kind of over the shoulder to your mom. You're like, "Uh, bye, mom. I might be gay. And and that cracked me up when I read it. I'm wondering kind of how you felt in the moment as you were saying it. Yeah, that, what a, what an idiot thing to say, right? Um, <laughs> and yes, I had that was my first experience with another woman on my Christmas break, uh, my freshman year of college, and I was going back to college that morning. My friends were outside, toot toot, honk honk. They're here to pick me up, drive back to Tallahassee, and I was just so beside myself. I didn't know what to do because I had said goodbye to this woman at midnight the night before. I just blurted it out. And yeah, I guess that was the first words I said to my mother. I I didn't even know if I was gay, but I just needed, I was exploding and I had to say something to someone, you know, so that, that was not handled uh, well. (laughs) Ryan McGee is best known down this way for ESPN's Marty and McGee show, which he co-hosts with Marty Smith. McGee's background in sports goes all the way back to the summer he spent as an intern with the Asheville Tourist Minor League Baseball Team. He captured that wild summer in the book, Welcome to the Circus of Baseball. Here, he talks about one of the special attractions that tourists brought in. Well, beyond all the, like, the regulars, the folks who, you know, you saw all the time in the stadium, there would be these, you know, touring acts that the, everybody who goes to the ballpark would have seen. Folks like the San Diego Chicken, you know, who's kind of the most famous one of those. But you, right at the beginning of the book, talk about one that I somehow had never heard of or met. Could you please tell the story of Captain Dynamite? Yeah, Captain Dynamite and his exploding coffin of death. That's right. um, and, and so when we, when Captain Dynamite, so, so there's varying degrees, you know, of, of acts, ballpark acts. The good news is if you're, if you're running a minor league team, any act usually is a spike in attendance. The, the bad news is you can't afford to book the San Diego chicken every week. So you go looking for ones that there's a different tiers. So like there was a blues brothers act that cost a couple thousand dollars. We couldn't afford to bring them in a couple times a year, but we could bring them in once. 
But then to counter that, sometimes you settled for Captain Dynamite and exploding coffin of death. And this guy, he did this for decades. And I mean, at drag strips and county fairs and, and major league baseball games. I mean, there was, I found a story written up about him that was in the New York times back in the 1970s, but he would roll up in a station wagon. I think we paid him $500 in cash. And he had a, a woman with him that I said, looked like she came from an Andrew Wyeth painting. Looked like the woman in the, in the field, right? Is she, is she, is she running from the house or going to the house? What she looked like very weathered. And then there was a bunch of little kids. And that was his crew because we asked part of our job as interns, we would help set up, you know, whatever the guests needed. Um, and it was like contract riders. And also he didn't have any of that. He just showed up and they constructed right behind second base. I mean, the same second base where, you know, Jackie Robinson had played and he, they would build this rudimentary coffin, which was really just a bunch of 3M insulation, you know, foam panels painted somewhat black and they put it out right behind it. It looked like a coffin out there and they'd pack it full of dynamite. Like, like Wally coyote, like old school, like dynamite, right? It's red sticks with the, with the, you know, fuses on them and everything. And they packed that in there and, and captain dynamite put on this old, like coverall. Yeah. I would call it a fire suit, like from NASCAR, but it wasn't that nice. And it had like, you know, Captain Dynamite stone into the letters and like an old bomb on it and stuff. And he he crawls up into this coffin and they literally had the old, like you see in the movies, like the old T-handled, you know, detonator. Like the plunger, yeah, where they, the Wally Cody used, yeah. That's it. Exactly right. Like he's going to blow up the bridge and, and get to finally get the roadrunner. So the family, they wire this thing up and they put him in there to put the lid on it and they take this thing over. Well, now it's getting tense because now we, and, and Ron, Ron, my boss isn't worried about it. He he's, he's booked this guy before, but the rest of us are like, the hell is going on? And I, we get down the dugout, the dugout at McCormick field is kind of below um, ground level. We all get in there like a bunker and the players start this is before the game and players start coming in. Like they're going to see what's going on. And we had this great old PA announcer, Sam Zurich, who um, if, if you grew up in Carolina, Sam voiced every TV commercial forever. And Sam was retired living in Asheville and he starts doing the countdown there were like players started handing out batting helmets in the dugout, like, you know, in case, just in case any body parts came flying in and that thing, that thing went off, Tommy. I mean, it was like, it was concussive. Like it was, it was, it was stunning. It was so loud. And it was a literal mushroom crowd cloud, you know, went up over second base. And now all these little silver and pink and black foam things are coming to the ground. And once the smoke kind of clears, he's just laying there. Like, I mean, just like in a fetal position, he's out and the family goes running out there. And, and I don't know, it could have been smelling salt. She could have just clapped her hands or, or shaking him or whatever. But eventually he kind of came to and stood up and maybe he was acting and maybe I fell for it, but I, I swear I, I wasn't that far away from him. I thought, he, I thought he was dead. And uh, that's the quote we start the book with. Um, was from one of the tourist players. So, oh man, I think that some bitch is actually dead, and <laughs> and we all really believed it. And because there was a moment where the crowd was horrified, um, and then it was kind of evil Knievel esque. Like, is he dead? And then once you realize he's not, they start cheering. But I just, I, what I always remember is he put his arm around his wife's shoulders, and they're walking off the field. And now we got to run out here and clean this thing up before the ball game starts. Usually he would do it after the game, but this day we did it before the game. And um, I remember leaving, and I said to him, I said, "Hey, great job." He kind of looked at me and like, what? And she goes, he said, great job. And that's when I realized he couldn't hear. 
he had a glass eye, missing fingers, but you know, it was all. And then that was his retirement year. Um, and then he was also, he was actually in the process of training a lady dynamite who she's on YouTube if you find her. And she, she was young and she was very, um, I'll just say she was very 1994. Um, she looked like the ladies on the Budweiser poster that everybody had in their dorm room, you know, back in the nineties. In and uh, she had a thong anchored version of what he had worn. And she, she did it for, she did it forever. She's retired in Florida now. So yeah, Captain Dynamite. Uh, if you can't get the San Diego chicken, by God, you can get Captain Dynamite and scare everybody to death. Another transformative tale from this year's guests came from Nat Glover. Glover grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, and as a boy, he was terrorized in an event that came to be known as Axe Handle Saturday, where white supremacists attacked black protesters who opposed segregation. Glover overcame that and grew up to become the sheriff of Jacksonville, the first black sheriff in Florida since Reconstruction. In this clip, he talks about why he wanted the job. At what point, or do you remember a moment when you thought, you know, I could do this, I could be the sheriff? Well, I'm, I'm gonna have to say that I never got to that point. I would like to say that I thought early, maybe I can be sheriff. And I said this to um, a, a veteran officer, and his exact words were, uh, Glover, there's a 20-year retirement here. I'm telling you, come to work, keep your mouth shut, do your job, make your 20 years, and then go home and wait on the mailman. But my first reaction to him was, I don't think I want to do that. I want to do what they are doing. And when I was saying do what they were doing, they were running the department. They were the sergeants and the lieutenants and the captains who were telling everybody where to go, how long to stay, when to come back, who goes and who stays. And I said, that's what I want to do. When we come back, our guests include sports commentator Bamani Jones, college football podcaster Ryan Nanny, author and drummer Nick Brown, and the legendary Texas singer-songwriter Robert Earl Keen. All that just ahead on Southbound. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts, or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And we're back with more of the best of Southbound 2023. Bamani Jones is sharp and thoughtful on any subject. It just happens to be that what he thinks about for a profession is sports. 
He's done shows for ESPN and HBO and has a huge following for his podcast, The Right Time with Bamani Jones. In this clip, we get into the link between the immense popularity of football, the changing American male, and how those two might be connected. You know, this is not true across the board, obviously, but our lives have become more and more soft in good ways for the rest of us. Like, most of us are not out farming anymore. Right. <laughs> most of us aren't working in factories anymore. It, but we still have that sort of need to feel something physical, to feel something maybe dangerous in our lives. And so, like, I kind of feel like the softer we get, the more we crave something like football. Football, to me, is about the the beauty of escaping that danger, right? There's nothing more beautiful than somebody breaking through the line for a touchdown because you know what they avoided. Right. And I, I just wonder if, if you've thought about that at all, about sort of how it seems like, you know, obviously the ratings are bigger than ever. It feels like we need football more than ever. Well, I think an interesting variable to go along with everything you talked about is masculinity right concepts of masculinity and traditional masculinity because one thing this society really really likes is men no matter how dangerous they happen to be right no matter what 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 hell has been wrought upon the world because of men people really like men and they like the idea of groups of men in lockstep like i remember my freshman year of college um somehow somebody got the bright idea that our dormitory should have some sort of induction ceremony. Like, yo, we just wound up here due to a lottery. Like it's not it's like we didn't, we didn't pick this because of the values espoused by these walls. Like it's just <laughs> we happen to live, but they got us all up and they told us to put on white t-shirts and black jeans or something like that. And we got out and we, we, we marched and we did chants and we did everything. And I remember as we're out there, there's about 130 of us, give or take. I'm looking out the windows of all the girls' dorms that were in our part of campus, and they were like transfixed in watching this assembly of men sounding like men, for lack of a better term, being like men, for lack of a better term. And people are into that. Like you think about any collection of something that's men in uniform, right? It could be, you know, the, the military. I mean, athletics, you can be the damn mailman, right? Like people get off on the idea of seeing these groups of men doing manly things. And as we move more to the service-based economy, as you say, I do think that there are, there are a lot of men who struggle with the idea of purpose. And we're seeing the hell that a lot of them are wreaking upon the world. Football offers all of those things because one thing about football also is that it fits very neatly into narratives of group sacrifice and all of the, all of those sorts of things along with giving you that oh those are manly men out there doing manly men things and for a lot of guys like if you grew up like you you became an accountant and your dad worked in a factory there's a chance that you look at your dad and wonder if he thinks you a man your dad is probably really proud that you didn't have to work with your hands right but there's nothing that reaffirms what is one of the most prized characteristics in the society, at least in the way that people think about, you know, the concept and the idea of masculinity. And so I think that as we do go soft, as you put it, because it's the truth, right? Like the life I lived is completely different than the life that my father lived, even different than the life that my mother lived in that regard. Um, football, I think people do cling to that maybe in another way as a way to prove that they are men, right? Like, and I think whether most men want to admit it or not, 
they could probably in their lives, if they thought about it hard enough, go back and be like, hey, that's the moment that I thought I was a man. And not just something trite like the first time you had sex or something like that, but like something where you realize like, yo, this is on you and this is what you do and you got it done. Um, And I imagine for a lot of people, it is harder for them to find those places and find those things. For a lighter take on football, I talked to Ryan Nanny, one of the co-hosts of the absurd and hilarious college football podcast called The Shutdown Fullcast. A highlight of every show, believe it or not, is advertisements. The co-hosts do their own ad reads and take something as simple as a Coors Light spot into strange and wonderful directions. In this clip, which features one of the ad reads, Nanny talks about how it all works. Coors Light is a sponsor of the full cast. Correct. Um, has anybody at Coors Light ever listened to what you guys <laughs> do to their ad reads? Spencer, you ever seen Blade Runner? Oh, yeah. Do uh, you remember what Harrison Ford's job is in Blade Runner? Yes, he's supposed to retire replicants, meaning hunt them down and retire them. Spencer, are you a replicant? See, I'm about to go ahead and let you in on a little secret here, Ryan. The trick to being a replicant is sometimes you don't know you're a replicant. Wow. Wow. Well, for all the non-replicants listening, which could be nobody, holy Mm -hmm. shit. Might be everybody. You don't have to retire in the Blade Runner way. You can retire in the human way. You know what that means? Think you're going to need to chill. You're going to need the perfect cold refreshment to chill like you're retired the human way again. Not with Harrison Ford letting you die on a rooftop in the rain. He wouldn't do that to you. He loves you. And he wants you to have a cold Coors Light. Imagine if you had gotten to Rutger Howard at that point in the movie. And he's about to embark on his epic monologue, the time to die monologue. Tears in the rain. Instead, a dove brings him a beer. (laughs) And he cracks a cold Coors Light. And he goes, Decker, time to chill. (laughs) That's the real director's cut. That's the director's cut. Just to, just to let listeners know here, well, just sort of maybe you explain kind of how y'all uh, interpret these uh, uh, erstwhile commercials. Let's sort of let's sort of talk about let's go all the way back to first steps. The way podcast ads work is you are sent you the, the host are sent a script and it has your talking points and it has your call to action and has your promo code. And some of these things are important. If you have a promo code, you have to say that. Sometimes there's specific language you have to say as well. Most hosts just read the copy that they are given. We decided long ago that this was not very interesting to us. We would get bored doing that. And we want the ad to feel like something the listeners should want to listen to because it's just as weird and stupid as the rest of the show. So that's how we end up with things like what you're alluding to where we imply that Cthulhu is alive and is only sated by uh, the cold brewed refreshing taste of Coors Light. That's not something Coors Light gave us in ad copy and said, please, (laughs) please, please go Lovecraftian this week for us. Your question about whether anyone listens to it on the sponsor side, if they do, they are either fine with it or they are too confused to say anything because I think uh, I think the only feedback we've ever gotten independ- from like a third party is that the ad read was too long because <laughs> we'll just go off on tangents and be like, somehow we're in minute eight of this Coors Light ad read. And they're like, we don't want that. It's interesting. I, I envision some like 
you know, junior executive at Coors Light whose job it is to just check in, see how the ad reads are going. And they listen to this and they just go, you know what? I'm not going to tell anybody about this. It, it would just, it would just mean more paperwork for me. Yeah. I mean, think about it this way. You are the person probably relatively low on the org chart at the sponsor who has to listen to the ads and you hear our nonsense. You have to go tell somebody else what it is we've done, which means you have to explain it and you have to, with a straight face, describe the nonsense that you have just been subjected to. And I think most people are just like, I don't need that stress in my workday. Nick Brown was a drummer for a rock band out of Greensboro, North Carolina called Athenaeum. They had a minor hit in 1998 called What I Didn't Know. And it looked like they might be headed for even bigger things. And right at that moment, Brown quit the band. He's been musing over the reasons why ever since. And this year, he wrote a book called Bang Bang Crash that tells the whole story. Here, he talks about the upside and downside of fame. It does feel like you guys were in sort of a a weird slot to try to explain that, you know, you weren't just playing bars in your, you know, hometown. You weren't the Foo Fighters either. But you were in between. You opened for the Foo Fighters. And so you're in that slot where there's a decent chance that people would know you or at least know the music. But there's also a decent chance people would have never heard of you. So that does feel like a particularly awkward place. Like Bono's never going to have that issue. Right, right. There is uh, another side to that, which I think about a lot, which is that we really had the perfect amount of success. You know, I mean, we had a big record deal with Atlantic Records. We had a hit song and it wasn't so big that we were stuck in it. I have a lot of friends who were a little bit more successful than us that I think maybe it would be harder for them to do what I did, which was just move on to the next thing in life. You know, there's a way to look back on it and think like, oh, man, that was perfect. And also it was a little bit, you know, pre-internet. So it's just sort of like poof. It's in a way it's just gone, you know, but we did it for real and we got to do it together and that part of it was magical our last guest on this episode is robert earl keen the texas singer songwriter best known for the road goes on forever keen actually got off the road last year playing what he said were his final shows as a touring act but he's still making music and in this clip he talks about the special place where he goes to write songs and clear his head. You talked about being at home, what you like there, and I know you've got this place that's famous among your fans called the Scriptorium. Mm-hmm. Could you tell folks who maybe is not familiar with your career what that is and, and what it means to you? Well, the, the Scriptorium is a, is about um, five hundred. It's then it's about it's it's this rock building that has, uh, you know, like a high-pitched roof. And the best way I can describe it is it looks like something, say, from the 19th century or late 19th century, especially around, um, like, the Hill Country area, uh, Fredericksburg, or where they did a lot of rock work, you know, like, not like big, big flashy rocks. I'm just talking about, like, almost like just stone, like, bricks almost, right? And And so it's made like that, and then it's only, like, Four or five hundred square feet inside. I mean, it's it's really small, but 
it has this jail bed that I had this guy build so you can hook it up against the wall so you have more room and you can just drop it down and all you have is two chains that hold it up. And then the, it when opens up to an amazing view for like 10 miles because it's sitting on the side of the hill. Fire pit there and a little kind of grill thing. And it's just like for me, it because of the how how old it is and how like how compact it is you know it's it's a place that you know i always just as soon as i walk in there i feel great and and i when i write songs um especially like specifically for a record or something i go there and i spend about i don't know a week to 10 days there and i just i leave my phone at home and i leave the computers at home and i just have books and guitars and I, you know, I live on venison sausage and white bread and uh, and big red, which no one knows outside of Texas what that is. But anyway, and I live on things that you probably shouldn't be living on. And uh, and I, you know, I, I sit there and I read I read books till I get tired of that. And then I pick up the guitar and play the guitar for a while. And then I take a nap and then I start it all over again and it just goes on. And I found over the years that that um, if you, once if you sequester yourself in that situation, there is kind of a metamorphosis that takes a place where you the first couple of days, you're really excited about being there. But like day three and four, there's this kind of weird transformation about loneliness and being all by yourself and too many thoughts in your head and you kind of kind of go crazy for a couple of days i always think of like that uh, you know apocalypse now thing with martin sheen and right. you know running banging around the in the room throwing the whiskey bottle all that there's kind of that going on and then when you come out of that there's i don't know i've always found like there's a certain amount of clarity and that's where i really can really find some you know great great new angles to write a song because there's just I've never been someone who wrote the same kind of song twice. I, I I just keep looking for, I'm not looking for the perfect song. I'm just always looking for a new way to write one. That's the best of 2023 for Southbound. Just a few more words before we go. This podcast, y'all, it, it started as a lark. I just thought it would be fun to have conversations with interesting Southerners with the tape recorder turned on. I didn't know if anybody else would want to listen. But it's been more than six years now, and we've got no plans of slowing down. Part of that is the support I get from WFAE, from our CEO, Jadon Marshall, all the way down. Greg Collard and Jen Lang edit these episodes, and every time they touch one, it gets better. I'm lucky to be a small part of a great team. But the real reason we keep going is that y'all keep listening. I can't count how many times I've heard from strangers through email, social media, or just on the street who say they enjoy listening to Southbound, that it means something to them. That warms my heart and fills my tank every time I hear it. And we plan to keep making episodes that you want to listen to. See y'all next year. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our main theme music comes from Joshua Lee Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
You can also subscribe for free to get each new episode sent to you when it's ready. You can also find Southbound on our website. Just go to wfae.org slash podcast slash Southbound. See y'all next time. Thanks for listening.